Okay, welcome everyone. Happy Wednesday. Parshas Vayigash. Parshas Vayigash starts off with a nice, um, I guess it really, can't really start off with a cliffhanger, right? So we'll say last week's Parsha ends with a cliffhanger. That would be more of a correct way to say it. Where this big epic confrontation between Yosef and Yehuda. So um, Yehuda, the Shvatim, the tribes, they leave Egypt. They're sent back. And all of a sudden, they're called back to Egypt or to the house of Yosef. And they're accused of stealing the goblet of Yosef, which we all know Yosef sent his messenger to plant inside of Benjamin, Benjamin's bag. And now they're accusing Benjamin of stealing the cup and the ah, sorry and they're accusing Benjamin of stealing the cup and then they say well Benjamin's going to be stuck here he's going to have to be our slave forever and ever and that's not good because Yehuda the Yehuda the tribe Yehuda she, he um promised his life, not only his physical life, but his um, olam haba, his share, his portion in the next world as well. And as we all know, if we don't have a share in the next world, we might as well not be around, we might as well not be living, because the whole purpose of living is for the next world. So he was willing to give up his share in the world to come, which is a fascinating discussion in its own right. That's why we skipped partial glass last week, because I didn't want to talk about it. But it's it, it, how a person can even be willing to give up his his share in his world to come. I can't even, be it as it may. He did that, so now he's gotta no. He gotta put his money where put his um. How's it going? Put his money where his mouth is. <laughs> he gotta put his money where his mouth is, and he's gotta live up to his. He's gotta live up to his uh, his 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 promise. Okay, go for it. The only other person I have ever heard that about what Yehuda said was Moses when he said, if this is what's going to happen, blot me out of your book. Remember? Yeah, yeah he, he does say that. Um, I mean, yeah, I wonder if it's powerful... the same thing. It's very powerful. It's a very powerful thing. It's slightly different. And I'll explain to you the difference now that you brought it up, which is, again, it's a huge topic. We're not going to get into the topic in depth, but just as a tip of the iceberg, Moshe was a leader. And he was, his sole purpose as a leader, as a real genuine true leader, in what a leader is supposed to be, was to be there for his for his uh, his constituents, whatever you want to call them, his, his, his people. So Moshe says, you're going to destroy my people and make a new nation for me? What does that mean for me as a leader? said, I would rather you take me out and I'll take it for the team, so to speak. I'd rather, if you taking them away, take me with them. And from such a, a, a an argument, God couldn't couldn't answer up, so to speak. And God agreed and he kept him. But so it's a little bit different over here. Yehuda was Yehuda versus Yosef, Yaman. It was a slightly different topic. But basic, the basic idea, same same style where we find the the powerful, powerful um, words that was the only way that Yaakov was willing to let Benjamin leave. Which happens to be fascinating because 
if Benjamin didn't leave, excuse me one second, if Benjamin didn't leave, they would have all died from starvation. So, like, it's even, it's difficult to understand that as well, but, yeah, go for it, Dan, what's up? Who did, could you clarify, who did Yehuda make that vow offer to? He made that vow to his father, Yaakov. Because that he Yaakov, would bring Benjamin home. Yes, because Yaakov refused to let him go. And okay. Yehuda said, we're all, we're all going to die from starvation. Okay. And Yaakov says, no deal. I'm not losing them. And it's a little bit of an interesting idea of, okay. well, they're all going to die. So what do you gain out of that? But that's a different discussion. Thank but, you. Yes. So, yeah, thank you, for, thank you for bringing it up so that I can clarify that. Yes. So the beginning, so yeah, they come back. And Yo Yosef is telling them, Yosef, again, the unknown leader of Egypt, Yosef, we know who he was. They didn't know yet. And he is accusing them, and he's going to take Benjamin and send them flying. So Yo so then, in the end of last week's parasha, he, Yehuda starts screaming at him, but Yom and Yehuda in last week's parasha, page 248 to 49, Manomala, Adoni, Manadama, Sadak, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? How can you even say this? You're not saying anything. It's a scam. And my father is going to be so terrible. He's going to be so upset at us. He's not going to let us get away with this. And Yehuda says, my father didn't really want to bring, let me take Yehuda with us. But he didn't want to do it even. And and, and now if he, if, he, if, he, if he comes, if we come back without him, it's going to be crazy and whole thing. That was the 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 speech last last week, okay. Flip the page to this week. Vayigash Elav Yehuda. Yehuda approaches him, which is um, ya Yaakov. I'm sorry, Yosef. Vayomer biadaini, and he says to him, "If you please, my master, my lord, Yidaber no avdecha davar ba'azne May your servant, me, speak a word in my lord's ears." Do not get angry with me. For you are like Pharaoh. You are like Paro. And there's a whole discussion. Maybe maybe we'll have time to talk about the whole and you are like Paro. What does that have to do with anything here? Rashi gives four explanations. And they both, two, they go from one extreme to the other extreme, which is a little bit of a unique uh thing that the the usually you have a few different explanations for a verse that all follow the general theme of either positive let's say versus negative you're not going to have two explanations one's all the way on the positive extreme the other one is all the way on the negative extreme yet over here we have that it's a different topic hopefully we'll get there but maybe not but but the first part of the pasuk we have to discuss. Okay, first of all, like I wrote in the in the in the email, what does this mean to speak into my lord's ears? Speaking his ears, he was telling him a secret. Is that the meaning of this? He was whispering to him. What does it mean to speak into his lord's ears? Okay, that's the first question. The second question I think is a little more important and more compelling is, let's go through what he says. Let's go see what he says. This is what he spoke to him in his ear. Okay, let's go through the next few verses. Yesh lanu of We have a 
an elderly father for Yelad Zikunim Katan, and a young brother, young child, and a brother died. Then he was only left with this one child, Binyamin, from his mother, Kama, from, from Rachel, because Yosef died. And our father loves him. I didn't say any words. I know. I'm sorry. I'm just, he goes and he tells him, no, still bring bring him with. And we told our father, and our father said, you can't take him. Okay? And we promised. And then you said, do not come return. Do not return to us. Sorry. Do not return to me until you bring this young child. When I told these words to my father, Yaakov, we begged him, please, let us, we need something to eat. He says, no. I'm sorry. And he says, we, and we told our father, and our father told us in return, our father responded to us that um, you know that we I only have two children from from Rachel. I only have two children from Rachel. One of them is missing. He got lost. He got eaten, but he got um, devoured by an animal. And I haven't seen him since. Very interesting choice of words, by the way. If you read it, I'll read it, I'll read it in English. One has left me as I, and I presumed, alas, he has surely been torn to pieces, for I have not seen him since. Sorry, I'm just going to stop the whole flow of the conversation. It's very clear from this verse that we've we always assume that Yosef, that Yaakov accepted that Yosef was dead, and he was like shocked that he was alive when they discovered him. From this verse, it's very uh, ambiguous. Once one has left me, he's talking about Yosef. One has left me, and I presume, alas, he has surely been torn up. To be, he says, for I have not seen him since. He doesn't say one of my children has died. He's given a little bit of like a, I don't know exactly what happened to him, but but I've been told that he's dead. So it's almost he wasn't really so convinced. He was convinced, but he wasn't a hundred percent convinced that his son was dead. Okay, moving on. So should you take this one too for my presence and disaster befall him? Then you will have brought down my. Horiness and evil to the grave. What does horiness mean? Um, um, Karo Asain by Ratam Sevas in Barang Yagan Shela. The Atta Kavaiti, fine. And then he says, and then the end of the argument, he says, and if we don't bring back Yosef, our father will be so distraught, he surely will die. And I guaranteed my life for him. And that's the end of the story. Did he? Sorry for being so dramatic. I, I read it for like the last five minutes. I just read all the verses. Did Yehuda add anything into the story that he didn't say before? 
he, in essence, he just repeated the same exact story again. In last week's parasha, he went through the whole story. He said, you know, we went to my father, he's going to die, etc., etc., etc. And and, and we promised him, and he didn't want to turn him down, blah, 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 blah. And in this week's parish, what does he do? He repeats the same story. So this whole drama of Ayigashi left Yehuda, he was getting all dramatic, and he said, what, what's the big deal? He didn't say anything different. He didn't change anything. He didn't add anything. One second. He didn't add anything. Um, okay, Sarah wrote me on the thing. Why didn't Yosef tell his father that he was still alive? Didn't he think Yaakov was going It's a very good question. Sarah, you ran away. It's a very good question. You wrote it on the, on the thing. It's not exactly what our, our topic is, but it's, it's a very good question. Um, so if, you, if, you would think he would want to tell him right away. It's a very good question. So Sarah asked, I don't know if anyone read it. But either way, it's good just for the recording to I'll say the question out loud. Sarah asked the question, what was going on? Why did Yosef not tell his father way back when that he was still alive? Why did he hide it? Now, Sarah, since you asked the question, I have to pick on you. Um, you're assuming that he was he had the means and the ability to send the message to his father. Right. He was a big vice for a big hotshot. He was a big hotshot, but he, he was still, we find that later on when he wanted to go bury his father, power was saying, nope, you can't leave. I'm in charge. You can't leave. So it's not 100% clear that he had the power to do that. But assuming he did have the power, there is a big discussion as to if he was if he acted correctly or incorrectly. The the some of the commentaries say that he viewed his his dreams of all of the tribes bowing down to him as prophecy. And he realized that this was gonna be a um the fulfill, fulfillment so to speak of of the prophecy. And if he were to tell his father this that he was in Mitzrayim and he was a viceroy, he wouldn't fulfill the prophecy. So he he he, so to speak, he 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 used his I guess divine wisdom to make this decision that although it would cause his father pain, the master plan of God was to to keep this hidden from his father until the right time. There are those that say that it was the wrong thing to do. Etc. And there's a whole discussion among the commentaries as to whether or not it was, it was it was the correct decision or incorrect decision. But be it as it may, one of the classic answers to the question is that he 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 realized that this would be the fulfillment of his the the, the fulfilling of his prophecy, and that's why he did it. Well, Mitzak could have could have told Yaakov that he was alive as well, but it wasn't. He knew it wasn't the right time. Yeah, so in essence, that's what I said, which is that he knew it wasn't the right he time know, because of the prophecy. Father yeah. getting the same information and not and and not revealing it. Uh, I missed it. You said you said that Yaakov knew it. That Yitzhak knew it. Yitzhak oh, Yitzhak. Knew that oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell Yaakov. 
exactly. So that's 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 good. Very good. Very good. I, I forgot about that. The the Medrash tells us that Yitzchak really Yitzchak was still alive for for a part of it, and he, so he died before he even revealed it. So it, right, it's he died with a secret, and the the, right. the Medrash says that he knew about it, and it's so very good. So the question would be. On Yitzchak as well, and since Yitzchak didn't say, so we can assume that if Yitzchak didn't say that was the right thing, perhaps, perhaps a child has a mitzvah commandment to to fulfill the obligation of keeping of aim, and it's much more, it's much, it's much worse for a child to cause a parent pain. Could be it would have been worse, but either way, same same idea. And Dan, what do you want to say? Wasn't he also concerned that his brothers might still kill him? <laughs> That yes. they might still be his enemy. Yes, that's another another classic answer yes. that the commentaries give is exactly that, is that Yosef didn't know what his brothers were thinking. And in fact, the fact, not necessarily they would actually kill him, but the fact that he became the viceroy and it was almost like a, like a, like a, like a stuck in their face. Uh, how do you say stuch in English? Uh, everyone knows what I mean, right? It was almost like a kick in the face um, that 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 he became so powerful. Now, almost like they would resent him more. He was nervous about that. He wanted to make sure that they would be happy with him. And this is fits very nicely into what we're going to do now. We're going to continue the conversation about the whole Yaakov, sorry, the whole Yosef and, and uh, Yehuda um, um, standoff, which is really... The agenda. What was the agenda? We'll see in a moment. But basically, just to end off with Dan's thing, Dan's thought, the agenda was to see how dedicated are they to Benjamin. Was Benjamin, well, again, he was another child of, of, of Rachel. How dedicated are they? Did they change their ways? Are they going to let him hang? Or are they truly dedicated? Did they learn their lesson, so to speak? Right? And the fact that Yehuda told him that I promised my life away, right? He didn't necessarily believe them until we'll see, until in a minute we'll see exactly what happened, what changes. But this is really the test. He wasn't necessarily, Yosef wasn't trying to just drive them crazy and make them go sugar for no reason. This was all a test um, to Dan's point to see if they changed their ways, to see if they were, if they were going to be accepting of his power, of him being in, in control. So back to the question. The question is, we found over here a long, maybe a little bit longer, a little bit more um, detailed than last week's Torah portion, but basically the same argument. He didn't change anything. The argument's the same. He repeated the same thing again. What's all, what's with all the drama? Why are we saying that this is such a dramatic, but Yigash, I love you. Yuda, Yuda approached him, and then Yosef it, it reveals himself right after this argument. So what's the difference? That's the question. Good, good question. Anyone have any good answers for me? I'll give you a hint. If you read the email carefully, you have my answer. I stuck it in that, there. Well, you said emotions. It's how it was said. Very good. You know how to read. Uh, yes, I saw your email. <laughs> your caveat. Glad. Eddie, should I have written it in, in, in Russian? No, you you know what I mean English. What, what was the picture, the caption? So I, I I literally punched in my my message into Google. I click search, 
and that caption came up and I tried to find a picture to connect to it and no picture. The pictures were all um, actions speak louder than words. That's the only pictures you get. But this whole thing with emotions, nothing. Okay, so let's get back to business. Let's get back to what we're talking about. There was a very... You cannot compare, like Steve pointed out, you cannot compare the idea of someone talking to you with the true emotion of what that feels like to something that is emotionless. Okay, a good example would be would be the famous um, I um, I don't know if it's famous among the secular circles, but in our even among the regular general public of the Jewish world, but in our um, yeshiva um, shalom bias um, um, classes, I guess you would call it, right, to help with or give his little training before he got married and how to deal with spouses. One of the things they told us is that you don't text things to your spouse. You don't text things because when you text, you cannot read emotion in a text. And when you text someone, you cannot read sarcasm in a text, right? And you cannot read expression, emotion. And that's why you have to be very careful. And we find in our daily lives, a lot of our problems, not, not necessarily most of our general problems, but a lot of problems with relationships crop up when we, mess, when we misread a text or when someone else misread our text, right? You say, all right, you, you say, um, what's going on? How are you doing? And then you say, um, "What were you? What were you thinking?" So, what were you thinking? Could mean what were you thinking, or what were you thinking? Could mean what were you thinking? Come on, what were you thinking? It can mean more things in the text. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't know. So either you could be someone could read it as the guy thinks that I'm crazy. What was I thinking? Really, he just wants to know, like, what were you thinking? What was the plan? And it could go in many different ways. So that's one is one example where we find that. When you have something that's the emotion that you put in is not attached to what the person sees, it's very difficult. That's one of the reasons why when you have live class, um, it's so much more powerful than when you have a class on, on, on. Uh, I'm not going to say Zoom because I'm going to kill the whole thing. But when you listen to a recording, when you listen to something that's not live, you listen to something after it's over, you don't get the same emotion, you don't get the same feeling. And when you read a book, it's it's such a talent for the author has to put in the emotion into the book. That's what separates the, the good authors from the mediocre authors, is the ability to be able to put in genuine emotion, to be able to feel it. That takes a lot of talent. But anyways, be it as it may, when you have something with the emotion attached to it, versus without the emotion attached to it, this is um, the difference between night and day is it can't even compare. Okay, this is the reason, by the way, just in parenthetically, why in a Bezdin, the Jewish Bezdin of old, the Talmudic times and before the Talmudic times of the 71 um, Bezdin of 71 of uh, the, the courts, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Jewish courts, the all the, the rabbis who presided on the courts, they needed to, to understand all 70 languages. We know we know this, even if we're not so professed in the laws of the, the courts, we know this from Mordechai. Mordechai, 
from the Parmesanari, he was able to understand the language of Big Son and Sarash, the two, um, uh, the two, the two ministers that were plotting to kill Achashverosh. And why was he? How was he able to understand their language, which is a foreign language? They were so comfortable speaking the language because they they knew that no one else would understand their language. They spoke about it openly. But Mordechai was on the Sanhedrin. He was on the high court. He knew all 70 languages, so he knew their language. He was able to snitch on them. Um, not snitch, whatever. Tell the king. And that's how they facilitated their death. So we see that... that so why did they need to know all 70 languages? For this, when a defendant comes to court um, to hear the... The, the 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 plea or the whatever the, the the his case through an interpreter you wouldn't get the same story you're not going to get the same story through an interpreter as you would get from the person himself but that's the idea of of Sanhedrin okay is a powerful story I have two two powerful stories one story I, I heard from the Chavetz Chaim famous Chavetz Chaim right, the leader of, of of the Lithuanian Jewry um, pre-war Europe passed away in 1933, um, right, right before Hitler rose to power. He was one of the greatest sages. He wrote the famous Sefer Chavetz Chaim. He wrote the famous halachic work um, called Mishnah Brura, among who's probably a dozen or so others, Svarim, other books. He had a special book actually. He wrote just for. For the there was in those days in, in Russia they had this crazy draft they used to draft all the young boys, um, all the young Jewish boys at a very young age. So he wrote a special book called Nitche Yisra, um, for the laws and the leniencies and all the little pitfalls, all the different things that would come up in the army in the army service. And it's a classic work. He has a lot of these leniencies for these young boys, these poor young boys who were stuck in the army. Um, that they shouldn't uh, be able to, they shouldn't throw it all away so they can be completely lost. He wrote a special book for them. And every time different situations came up, he wrote a book, a, a safer for, for that specific situation. Anyways, Chavetz um, Chaim, there was a decree being passed to force all of the yeshivas, all of the yeshivas to put into their daily studies, secular studies. Now, we may... Um, feel that that's not such a big deal um, and I'm not going to get into all the details about how that exactly played out in those days but for all intents and purposes we would let's let's compare it to the government forcing us in the kolal to separate half our day to study biology instead of to force us in our studies if we wanted to study Jewish studies in the morning, we would be forced to study biology in the afternoon. That would be, I guess, in a, kind of in a similar, um, um, I guess, similar situation. That's what it would look like. And that's clearly not what the St. Louis Community Cola is all about. St. Louis Community Cola is legendary for being one of the premier coal, premier Torah institutions in America. You know, we wouldn't, uh, we would rather close down our cola than to be um, designating a half hour day studying biology. So that's what the yeshivas in Europe, in Russia, Europe, just for now we'll just call it Russia, that was the, the yeshivas in Russia were, were facing this evil decree to make all of the yeshivas um, um, 
study secular studies half the day. So they had a meeting scheduled with the education minister. And the plan was that the Chafetz Chaim, this is Chafetz Chaim was the elder sage, and he was going to come. He didn't speak any Russian. He was going to come speak, say over a short little something in Yiddish. In Yiddish. And then the and then the 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 other rabbis, which also were great leaders, who understood Russian, they would speak in Russian and try to convince the the minister to change his ways. Okay? But when they got there, what happened was the Chavetz Chaim changed the plan a little bit and he ended up giving a passionate, heart-wrenching speech in Yiddish for like 20 minutes to the education minister. And as you can imagine, the education minister did not speak a word of Yiddish. So that was the story. So then the second rabbi started to get, to get up to speak. And he started talking in Russian. He was about to get himself up. To, he was about to get all into his speech. And the education minister said, no, it's fine. You don't have to talk. I understood everything the rabbi was saying. And the rabbi said, you understood everything he said, but he spoke in Yiddish. How do you understand? Yeah, I didn't hear understand any words he said, but I got the message. He spoke so passionately, I felt exactly what he was trying to say. And he he took say he said, Don't worry about the decree. I'll annul the decree. The decree is completely null, null and void, and it's taken care of. That's what the minister said. And then and then it wasn't like it wasn't like happily ever after. There were other issues, plenty of issues over the years, as Eddie would know. But in this um particular incident, that's how it ended. And it was a beautiful story. And we see that what the minister saw, what the minister felt, and what the minister um internalized was nothing to do with the content of the speech. It had to do with the emotion what he put into the speech. There's another story, a little bit of a different twist, but the same same idea. Um, my rabbi used to say this to me all the time. There was a famous rabbi, famous Rosh Yeshiva in in Lakewood Yeshiva, New Jersey. His name was Rav Aaron Cutler. Rav Aaron Cutler was the one who who opened up the yeshiva. He had a he was a Rosh Yeshiva in Europe before he left Europe to America by the before the Holocaust. He opened up his yeshiva in Lakewood, and he used to live in Manhattan at the time. And he used to he used to make a parlor meeting every year. And this one particular year, he made a parlor meeting in a certain wealthy person's house. Okay, he was a from um, Jew who was an Orthodox Jew. He was a supporter of the yeshiva, and he made a he made a parlor meeting, and he had a non-religious um, Jewish neighbor who lived across the hallway in Manhattan. Everything is apartment building, so it was a beautiful, magnificent condo. But it was across the hallway, and he uh, invited him. You know, maybe he'll, maybe his neighbor will give him a little donation for the yeshiva. So he wasn't religious, but he invited him into the yeshiva to speak, to, to into the parlor meeting to to join. 
Now, with Aaron Cutler, the famous Rosh I don't know if anyone you saw pictures of him, but he has blazing blue eyes and he had this shining face and he came up and he gave a speech. Now, when Aaron Cutler spoke by a parlor meeting, right, not like what the Rosh Hashivas do today, where they would say a nice thought, cute Torah thought, and tie it into fundraising and how it's so important to support Torah. What Aaron Cutler did was he delivered a speech. He delivered a shearer, a sheer klali, a, 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 a in-depth lecture on the deepest sugya, on the deepest topics in the Torah, whatever whatever track that he was learning in the yeshiva. And it was on par with the, right, the highest level as if he would be giving this year, delivering this year in the yeshiva itself. And it wasn't a little speech, 45 minutes. And it was in Yiddish. So if Aaron Cutler gets up there and he starts speaking and starts delivering his speech, he starts talking and he gets involved and he's starting to talk and he's getting all excited and you know, he's using his thumb and the whole thing, getting all dramatic about it. And everything's in Yiddish. And after the speech, the host is getting a little edgy because he's his neighbor from across the hallway is probably getting very bored and very antsy. So after this speech is over, he runs over to his neighbor and he says, I feel so bad. I had to sit through it. I apologize. You probably didn't understand. And his neighbor says, no, 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 no. I got the point. He wrote him a large check for the yeshiva. And he says, I got the point. The passion, the way the rabbi spoke, the passion in his eyes and the love for the Torah, you could see he connected so much to what he was trying to say. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And he gave the yeshiva a, a, a large donation. Same idea. Where the body language, the, 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 the vibrancy, whatever it may be, that a person puts into his speech is so important. It's so much part of the speech that even if the person doesn't understand the speech, doesn't understand the words of the speech, the content of the speech, the passion itself and the emotion itself is enough. A lot of times enough to bring out the message, to bring out the point. So says the Beis Yitzhak, the Beis Yitzhak was a great sage from, from the late 1800s. He, he, I don't know much about him, but I know that there's a famous um, responsa about light bulbs, because that's when light bulbs came around. About if you allowed to turn on a light bulb, you use light bulbs for, for Shabbos candles and other issues and lighting Hanukkah candles with a light bulb. And he was the earliest um, source um, for this topic and it was a brand new, um, um, at least in his area of Europe, it was a very, very new novel innovation. Um, and and he has, it's very interesting if you read the way he write, writes it, the, the light bulb is this new thing and it it's works in a wondrous way. He has all these interesting ways of how he describes it. But um, be it as it may, he writes a powerful distinction between last week and this week. Last week and the whole time, Yosef and the brothers were using an interpreter. Yosef was feigning. He claims that he didn't understand the Hebrew. He was an Egyptian. 
right? He feigned his his thing. So and the and the Jews didn't speak Egyptian, so they used an interpreter. There's an interpreter. The interpreter actually, the commentaries say, was Yosef's own son, and he was interpreting back and forth. And they were speaking in Lashon Kodesh, and the Yehuda had no idea that Yosef actually understood him the whole time. But and the interpreter was repeating the story over to who to 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 Yosef. So Yehuda realized this is not working. This is not working. Why? Because of the interpreter. He's not getting my emotion. He's getting the words. He's getting the content. But he's not getting the emotion. He's not getting what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to give over. So he says, I want to talk to you in your ear, not in his ear as a whisper, but forget the interpreter. I want to talk to you directly. That's what Yahuda is saying. Forget the interpreter. I want to talk to you. And then he doesn't say anything new. He doesn't say anything extra. He doesn't change the argument. He says the exact same story again. But now Yosef gets it. Yosef finally gets it. He's ah, now I feel the emotion. Now I get it. He and then if you, if you flip it over, really Yosef understood the arguments the whole time, but Yosef wasn't listening to the to the body language. He wasn't listening to Yuda. Yuda was talking to the interpreter, and the interpreter was telling him the story. Now Yosef is getting the argument as well. Yosef is getting the emotion. Now Yosef gets it as well. Yosef says ah. They did change their ways. He really is passionate about Benjamin. He really is willing to give his life away for Benjamin. He is. That clinched it. That's what clinched it. And they finally got it. Because now you get the real genuine emotion. And that is that. That is the, that is the end of that thought. Um, I see we only have four minutes left. So we can either end early or we can start another thought. Question is if we're going to finish on time. So I don't know. I wrote it in the email, so I think I, I think I'm, I'm obligated to at least. Yeah, another start. thought, please. Okay, fine, Steve. If anyone wanted to get out of jail early, you can blame Steve. Okay, so another thought because I wrote it in the email, so I think I'm obligated to at least touch upon it. So after he, this is a very short thought. Just a lot of, a lot of. A lot of afterthought on this thought. The thought is very, very short. And just a lot of, it's a little bit of a, a can of worms that we're going to open up, um, which can we can uh, discuss at length after the class is over. So after he reveals himself, he says, I need Yosef. I am Yosef. Is my father still alive? Right? He reveals himself. What did he do right before he reveals himself? So if we go back um, to to right at the beginning of chapter forty-five, um, um, chapter forty-five, verse one. Now Joseph cannot restrain himself in the presence of all who stood before him. So he called that, "Remove everyone from before me, take everyone away." Thus, no one remained with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Why did he do this? Why did he send everyone out? So there's different answers, but the most classic answer given, the, the simplest answer given is that he didn't want to embarrass his brothers. His brothers will, will realize that the whole thing came full circle. 
And here's where the moment of truth lies. He didn't want to embarrass them in front of everyone else. So he told everyone to go out, and then he revealed himself in front of his brothers, no one in the room. Now, the, the problem is that th they didn't know he was their brother yet. So for all he knew, as soon as he sent everyone out, right, 11 against 1, they could have killed him. Like that. Right? It was a silly move on his part, in essence. Now, you can answer, he really knew that, he knew that they were righteous because he knew they were his brothers. He hoped that they wouldn't have done that, whatever. But either way, the point is, is that at some level, he was willing to risk his life to not embarrass them. So we find this by Yehuda and Tamar in, in, in two weeks ago's Parsha, that Yehuda was willing to risk his life for Tamar, um, not being embarrassed. No, I'm sorry. Tamar was willing to risk her life so that Yehuda wouldn't be embarrassed. And we find this in a few places. And the idea is, that when a when a when a person is is in a situation where they have the opportunity to to really embarrass someone openly in front of someone or to control himself and not to open, embarrass someone to put it in the perspective of well you see in the Torah that Yosef was able to do this in a safe way by letting his guards stay. And Yosef was um, did not. Yosef took a pushed everyone away, um, and was willing to risk his life to be able to spare someone else a little bit of uh, uh, not a little bit, a lot of uh, uh, embarrassment. Then we can put that in a little bit of a perspective of how important it is to not embarrass someone, or to all the more so not to actively go out of your way to try to lay it on someone. Um, that's that's the basic idea. That we can see from this, this, this um, part of the parsha, and there's a lot of um, commentary and discussion. A lot of it's a whole uh, topic in in and of itself. But I just wanted to end off with this. There's a cool story that I heard once as a, as a, as a, uh, a while ago, and I found it in a, in a book. There's a famous rabbi. His name was Rabbi Avi, Avi Shulman. He just passed away last year. He he was he was the one of the the big uh, leaders of Torah Masora. He he was one of the leaders. He, it was his brainchild, the Project Seed. I don't know if anyone is familiar with Project Seed, where they send um, Jewish, I'm um, not Jewish, I mean yeah, Jewish, but um, yeshiva boys. They send yeshiva boys around the country to different small cities, including San Luis, to 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 study and do programming for the for for the people in the community um over the summer. So they the boys they get a little bit of a change of scenery, a little vacation. Sometimes the the, the Balabatan would um, take them out on trips for different places or whatever maybe. Um and and the community gets a boost, a little energy, some young boys coming to give them some inspiration. And sometimes they, they run day camps with the children. Anyways, so Rabbi Avi Shulman was a famous, great educator. He was actually Roy Levitansky's father-in-law, I believe. I think. Um, so Rabbi Avi Shulman said over this story, he was once talking with a group of people, and he asked them, for whatever reason, I don't know if he was taking a poll, he was just curious, he says, who is your best Rebbe? 
And without one kid, one guy, 40-year-old man, without missing a beat, said my fifth grade Rebbe was my best Rebbe. He's really, what do you remember from fifth grade? He has one particular story st stands out, and I still remember this. I'm never going to forget this if my dad died. One time, one day, there were a bunch of group of us in the back of the room that were misbehaving. Me included, says, says the, the man. And the Rebbe was talking to stop, the uh, whole thing. And eventually he got fed up and he wrote our names on the chalkboard. Yehuda, Chaim, Yanki, whatever it is. And he said, after class, you guys are all going to have to stay in for for recess or whatever the punishment was. Okay? Five boys. And then for whatever reason, the principal walks in unexpectedly to give them a, in, in Yiddish, we call it a farhar. For her, is like a like an oral quiz, like an oral uh, um, like pop exam, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the principal walks in and he starts, he sits down in the rabbi's chair. The rabbi stands up. The principal takes a seat, and he's the principal's facing the class, and he starts giving the quiz. And the rabbi goes to the chalkboard, and he's standing by the chalkboard, and nonchalantly, and he starts going like this. And within the next couple of minutes, the boys notice that the back of the Rebbe's jacket is covered in chalk. The fact that these boys needed to get the discipline they needed, that was, that was, that was, they, they were misbehaving. But to, to, Lest the principal see when he gets up and turns around, he sees these five boys named on the chalkboard. He'll ask why they're on the chalkboard. The Rebbe said, I'd rather get my jacket all dirty and have to send it to the dry cleaners than let these five boys um, get this anguish of maybe the principal is going to see my name on the chalkboard. Can you imagine that? That's that's a good Rebbe, by the way. That's what it means to be a good Rebbe. To be able to really care about your students so much. Yes, you have to discipline them, but not any more than, than is necessary for the principal to, to, to see that. Anyways, but the idea is to, that we see that, that to spare someone else a little bit of a little bit of embarrassment. We, it's, it's, it's super important. It's so important. Anyways, have a great job as everyone.